Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir, the podcast from Share Our Strength, the nonprofit organization that runs the No Kid Hungry campaign. It's the podcast where we talk with someone who set their sights on a problem and are working to change it. To celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, we're looking back at two conversations that we had with Korean American James Beard award-winning chefs, Ann Kim and Joanne Lee Molinaro. Minneapolis-based chef Ann Kim is renowned for her innovative take on pizza at her restaurants Pizzeria Lola, Young Joni, Hello Pizza, and Suki and Mimi. She's the first woman and first person of color from Minneapolis to win the James Beard Award, and she's been featured in the Netflix series The Chef's Table, among many other accolades. She defies labels from what type of food she makes to her journey to cooking, which has not made her journey easy, but the result has been something uniquely hers. Joanne Lee Molinaro, perhaps better known as the Korean vegan, also created a path that was distinctly her own. A practicing lawyer, Joanne started a blog in 2016 when she adopted a plant-based diet and grappled with the question of how to create vegan versions of the Korean food that she loved. As the Korean vegan, she shares and celebrates the immigrant story in America. In our conversations, both chefs reflect on what it means to identify as both American and Korean. They both shared their experience growing up as the children of immigrants. For Ann Kim, cooking itself has been a way to share her the heritage. The reason I got into this profession was really just, it was cooking is something that I always love to do. And I don't know if it was really a conscious decision, but when I wasn't working, I was cooking or I was entertaining or it always brought me a sense of comfort or um, relieved a lot of my stress because it was something that I really enjoyed doing. And it was something that I grew up with. Um, like you had mentioned, uh, we immigrated to this country in the late 70s uh, and my maternal grandmother, Sukyang, uh, also came with us uh, primarily to help my parents uh, raise myself and my sister while they worked multiple jobs like most immigrant families. And she was the primary cook in those uh, early formative years. And we grew up with not a lot. We grew up pretty poor. Um, we did for a little bit um, live off of, um, you know, some public assistance and uh, she was very resourceful. And oftentimes when it's about necessity, you're forced to be very creative. And my grandmother made do with very little. We had a garden in the summertime which she would tend to. She brought some seeds along with her um, and planted some things that she normally would never have been able to find in the produce section in the grocery store in the late 70s. She made everything from scratch because she couldn't go to the grocery store like we can today and find things like tenjang or gochujang or even she made her own soy sauce and I remember just being by her side watching her and being fascinated and and tasting you know she would have me taste things and I could differentiate when things were too salty or not salty enough so it's sort of a part of my DNA you know um, making kimchi every fall I remember that was that was a big, big event in our household. Um, every fall, we'd get hundreds of pounds of Napa from a, a farmer in Wisconsin, and we'd gather in the laundry room in the basement, and we'd use my sister and I's kiddie pool, plastic kiddie pool, as a bowl big enough to brine that amount of cabbage. <laughs> and just sitting there and helping my mother and my grandmother, um, and I perfected the kimchi squat at a very young age. <laughs> 
you know, brine and paste uh, the Napa and put it into jars. So we would have kimchi throughout the winter season. And, and that is just a big part of my memory. And when I decided I was going to shift and, and change careers, I just thought to thought about what brought me a lot of joy. And it was cooking. And once I figured that out, I really just decided to focus on one thing and do it really well. And one thing that I really missed um, and felt like I wasn't able to find was really great pizza. And so the rest is history from there. I mean, it seems a little cliche, but there is no room for hate in food, right? Um, uh, Food is about nurturing. Uh, It's about taking care of people. It's about making people feel special and and, and welcome. Um, It really is the great peacemaker um, throughout you know, anytime I've traveled, I've made connections through food. People are proud of the kind of food that they produce. And that's the way, you know, whether you speak the language or not, there's one thing we all have in common is we all have to eat, right? And you can share um, so much over um, by breaking bread over a table that you realize when you sit and you share stories over a, a dinner table that you have much more in common than you have um, differences. And I think that's part of why I got into this business is that growing up, we didn't have a lot. But the one time that I felt like we had um, plenty is at the dinner table. You know, my, my, because my grandmother and mother were such resourceful cooks, it always felt like we were eating like kings and queens, you know, and, and I realize that now. Um, and I wanted to bring that sense of hospitality, um, a sense of warmth, welcoming and nurturing to all my restaurants that, that I felt um, when I needed it the most when I was a child to be able to spend time with my family because we didn't get to spend a lot of time together. I didn't get to see my parents as often as I wanted to, but around the dinner table, it was a special time. So I realized that in this day and age, um, we're so busy, right? We, we glamorize busyness and and to be able to sit down and just take the time for someone to um, say I've spent time to to make this dish and it, it not it's it's first and foremost delicious but it's also representative a little bit about my history about what I care about and when I see a person light up after they take a bite and say I, I've never I don't recognize these flavors but it tastes so good it make and there's something about it that I just love I mean you can't replace that and so I like to say that when you walk into my restaurants from the moment you walk in that it feels like you're getting a giant hug from this the the smells that you smell um, you know two of my three restaurants currently are fired by uh, wood-burning ovens and grills, and you can smell that aroma in the air. Um, you can smell the spices, and and I like to call it, you smell the sweetness in the air, and uh, you see the energy that's surrounded. Um, there's a certain kind of simpatico and flow when a restaurant is just working um, the, the way it should be, and it just feels good. And that's the way I want people to feel when they come in, that they can leave their problems aside for a couple hours and 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 come to a place where where uh, someone else is taking care of them and and make letting them sort of escape for a while and um, it, you know there's no people have asked me you know what kind of food do you serve is it Korean food is it, is it I do pizza is my current wheelhouse is it Italian food I just say 
it's just really great food made with um, integrity and love. And the way I was raised, um, it was sort of an amalgam of being raised in the Midwest, uh, being able to use ingredients that were part of our terroir, but also being Korean and, 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 and creating food that was connected to my history and our heritage. And we just kind of created food with what we had. And you will recognize that when you step into any of my restaurants, there's a little bit of Korean, there's a little bit of Midwest, there's a little bit of global flavors, because those are the things that speak to me. And it's just great food. Joanne also loves food and cooking, but shared how the Korean food she ate at home made her feel different when she was growing up. I, I love eating food. Um, I can't remember a time when I didn't love food. My brother loves food. We grew up loving food. But my parents and my family, uh, you know, I lived with both of my grandmothers growing up. So from the age of zero to three, I lived with my maternal grandmother. And then from the age of three to 13, I lived with my paternal grandmother. And that's very typical in a Korean household, even uh, you know, maybe even particularly so in the United States when your brother is the only uh, son of the oldest son. So my father was the oldest son in his family. And when my brother was born, his grandmother, my paternal grandmother came to live with us. It's very typical. And because of that, we had only Korean food at home. We didn't get to eat American food. We did very, very rarely. And it was always sort of an interesting interpretation of American food that we got to eat at home. And uh, we, you know, sometimes we would go to like a pizza hut or a Ponderosa for like birthdays and special occasions. But otherwise, it was very traditional Korean fare at home. And that was always very frustrating to me and my brother because that wasn't what the kids at school were eating. Uh, that wasn't what the kids on TV were eating. And we felt like we were missing out on like this amazing gastronomic experience that everyone else is having that we were not. Um, so it wasn't until I got to college that I realized, you know, what a blessing um, I had during those earlier years where I got to eat home-cooked Korean food virtually every single day. I saw one of the uh, videos you talked about, I forget the name of the school, I think it was Highland Elementary, the, the cafeteria, and how, what a hard place that was for you um, to go to. Why, why was that so hard? It was hard for a lot of different reasons, but in the beginning it was hard because I had the wrong food, <laughs> you know, like every, I mean, you know, like growing up, there are some children who by virtue of their personality or the way their parents sort of, you know, raise them, they are strong enough even at the ages of eight, nine, 10 to say, I don't care if I'm different. I'm proud of my difference. You know, there are children like that. I was not one of those. I didn't want to be different. I wanted to be like everyone else, you know, and I was so different already um, because I didn't look the same. And I was different because I didn't speak the same language. And then I was different because I didn't have the right food. I didn't even have the right lunchbox, you know. So all of these things were just incredibly distressing to me. And then, you know, finally, when my when my grandmother, you know, 
got on the program and started sending me to school with, you know, ham sandwiches and juice boxes and potato chips, the irony of it was, even though it looked the same as everyone else's, I hated the food. It was so terrible. I was like, I don't like what my lunch is anymore. Did, did that help you just kind of accept, you know, all the wonderful food you did have and just start, you know, packing that or no? Not really. <laughs> it just, I was just that bratty kid who was like, no, I want, now I don't want you to pack my food. I want you to give me money so that I could buy pizza and French fries like all the other kids are. It just, it was a lot like that really up until college. Both Anne and Joanne bring their personal experience into their work. For Joanne, she uses her platform to create spaces where people, specifically immigrants, can see and hear the stories that feel familiar to their experience. I would say my primary objective is to create what you call teachable moments or moments where people can reflect a little bit, take some time to think about something. I don't share my story simply to share my stories. That is not the intent. I And some of them, as you note, are uncomfortable for me to share. But I do it because I feel like there is a kernel of truth in these stories that more people need to hear. And so it's always that. Now, can they also be cathartic? Most of the time they are. In a couple of instances, they were too uncomfortable to be cathartic, if that makes sense. And so, um, and, and, you know, and in those instances, looking back, I always have to wonder, you know, it's important what you do and it's important to share these stories for the lessons in them, but you also need to remember that it's important to consider whether you're ready to share some of these things. And if you're not, then you should not. We haven't really talked about the immigrant experience and all that you convey about that, we're almost kind of taking for granted that the, and it is such a big part of your, uh, I feel like of your, your message and what people understand about you. But say, do you feel a responsibility now uh, on, on kind of representing the immigrant experience and helping to communicate it? Well, that's a really good question. Because I think the word responsibility can be a little bit loaded. And I think uh, yeah, yeah, it's a heavy word. it can be a very heavy word. And I think that I've always felt a responsibility, no matter what, but the nature and weight of that responsibility has certainly changed over the past couple of years. When I started sharing my parents' stories in 2017, that was very deliberate. It was intentional. I saw what was happening in our country. It broke my heart. It made me angry. It hurt me. And I felt like this is my way of trying to heal some of this for me personally, as well as for my 10,000 followers you know, on Instagram. That's what I was doing. I was like, some people need to know a little bit more about the immigrant experience in the United States because they clearly do not understand it. And I think that what happened in the past year and a half, and particularly more recently, as we've seen additional instances of hate against the AAPI community, is understanding that I am not just speaking to people who don't know the immigrant experience. I'm also speaking to people who know it too well 
who have it in their hearts and have not been able to share it with anyone because they're afraid, because they don't have the words, because nobody's listening to them. I'm also speaking to them too. This is a new revelation to me. I did not think about that when I started sharing these stories. And so over the past year and a half, I've been very mindful of making sure that whatever I share is a fair, reasonable, and healing representation for the community of which I've been a part since I was, a, you know, uh, since I was born. Anne recounted how winning the James Beard Award made her realize the power of her platform and the responsibility she had to make new pathways and possibilities visible to other Asian Americans. It's making me relook at where I'm at in my life, whether it's about a career choice or what I thought I can or cannot do or what I should or should not do, or because I'm a woman or because I'm a person of color or because it wasn't the traditional path or what was expected of me and thanking me. And it's like, damn it. Like, thank God, you know, I did that that morning because um, I if it could inspire even one person. And when I was thinking of that, I was like, well, what would five-year-old Anne want to hear, right? You know, this immigrant that felt awkward and strange and alienated, what would she want to hear? You know, if somebody, and, and I looked up and there was somebody that looked like me, that what would be inspiring? And that if I could touch one person, a, a little Anne out there that just happened to be listening to the Twitter live feed, you know, or something, um, you know, if that if that captured that person's imagination, that child's imagination to say, I can do this. I look like her. Um, I feel like her. I can do this. Then made all the difference in the world. And I try not to define myself by awards or accolades or reviews. I mean, those things are fleeting. Um, and nobody at the end of the day, at the end of the day, nobody really cares. And it's really about doing the job at hand. And it's really more about do the people that come through the restaurants love what I do? Do my team members, do my restaurant family believe in the kind of organization we've built? And are they proud to work for me? Can I go to bed at night and wake up in the morning and say, I'm proud of what I've built and I'm proud to go to work. That's what matters, right? So things like awards and of course, ultimately the James Beard Award was amazing, but that's just icing on the cake. And it's really an, a platform and an opportunity to do something that's bigger than you and make an impact and a difference. And just as Joanne noted, for Anne, this responsibility challenged her to reflect on her own journey and path. This became particularly true following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis in 2020. You're, you're such an interesting combination in this particular moment. A chef who's an immigrant, a woman of color in Minneapolis, where Black Lives Matter had such a pronounced impact, not only in Minneapolis, but around the rest of the, the country. And you, but you've also talked about benefiting from white privilege. What did you mean by that? I heard that and I was really curious about how you were kind of internalizing that or experiencing that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated, you know. It's you know, you can't fit any human into a category. We're all very unique in so many ways and when all this went down after the killing of George Floyd and and all the social unrest and 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 the protesting and and the riots. Um, it was 
there was a lot of noise out in the world and there was a lot of anger and in many times, you know, rightfully so. And I completely support um, all the protests that were happening in, in order to uh, bring attention to the social, racial injustices that have been going on, uh, not just now, but for hundreds of years. And people were literally screaming and people scream and they talk loud when they feel like they're not being heard. And I was trying to listen and I had a lot of conflicted emotions and, and people screaming here left and right and, and calling people out and saying, you should do this. And this is how you should feel. And as a white person or as a business owner, this is what you should do. And this is what you should stand up for. And this is what you can't do. And in the middle of that, I wasn't sure where I fit into that spectrum because in some ways growing up here, uh, since I was literally five years old in um, the Midwest, in Minnesota, where it was predominantly white, I was heavily influenced too um, by uh, my, my uncle is also white and he sponsored our visas to come to the country. Um, I had bonus grandparents that in many ways helped my family assimilate because they knew that it would be challenging to be different. So they, in essence, encouraged us to take on all aspects of being white and growing up without other minorities or immigrants or other Koreans, um, K through high school, until I went to New York to go to college, that I realized that I wasn't white, that I was actually Korean and that I was an immigrant with struggles and I fought my damnedest to fit in, to deny who I was, because that was the only way I could survive and get through school as a child and most of my adulthood um, to basically not ruffle feathers, to basically put your head down and work hard. Um, don't be the squeaky wheel. Um, just accept the way things are. And by doing that, I realized I was taking on, uh, you know, I was taking on a lot of um, the things that, that, I, that were hurtful um, to me. I was taking on in order to protect myself. And I was also benefiting from that because I knew that if I didn't, um, it was going to harm me. And unfortunately, during that time, you know, during the most recent uh, social unrest this past summer, I didn't really know how to feel. Um, and it was hard when people were telling me how to act. And it was like, well, people don't really understand who I am. And I wasn't really quite sure how I was to react, except that I wanted to support the Black community. Because even though I didn't know what they were going through, I did understand the challenges and the harm of systemic racism. Um, and I, I tried to see, you know, where, you know, I might have been a part of that as well and where my conflict came from and, 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 and how my journey was affected um, and how we could do things differently. 
um, so we wouldn't have to live in this kind of world. So it's it's even hard for me to articulate. It's a uh, you know, it's complicated, but it's not, you know, it's, yeah. Well, and, I, and I think for most of us, and I don't mean this as kind of a cop-out or a, an excuse, but I think it's a, it's a work in progress. We don't get to a point where we say we have it figured out or we have it solved. Um, and it evokes a lot of uh, complicated uh, family history and community history. And there's a lot to sort through and there's just a lot to learn. One of my colleagues, uh, recently we were talking about uh, striving to achieve what's become a you know somewhat popular phrase of cultural competency, and she urged that we not use that because it suggests that you get to an endpoint of being competent, and I don't I don't I don't know that we ever do. I think the most we can do is is kind of to be open to continue to learn. But uh, as you're as you're you know trying to articulate it, I get the sense that that journey is not complete for you as it's not for most of us. No, and it never, it, it shouldn't ever be, right? I mean, it's a constant evolution. I mean, the only thing that's constant is time and it passes. And I thought a lot about it and I thought about the history of uh, humankind. It's, I think it's always been this way and there's always a judgment rooted in fear. And I don't know if it's a way that humans protect themselves, but there is this judgment that if something or someone does not look or act like you, you are, it's inherently in you or you're taught to fear it. And that just is not the way it should be. And I do think that some of it is learned, some of it is enrooted in, in, in some of our DNA, but it is our job to make changes, to educate, to learn, to have understanding, because we can't make decisions rooted in the fear. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, that right now it's a scary time. It's an uncertain time. There's a lot of fear. The danger is, is when you make decisions and policies rooted in fear, right, without really understanding the whole picture or the story or the complications, and that takes time. And it's time well worth spent. You have to look at it as the long game and not the short game, which too many people are playing right now. Um, and it's going to affect generations. And we might as we we have to we have to start now. Um, and it's it's a slow and progressive path. And oftentimes when I look at big issues or problems. Um, and I think, oh my God, this is such a big mountain to scale. How do I do it? I become overwhelmed and don't want to even start. So I just look at it. You have to start somewhere, you know, rock by rock, step by step, and you just start scaling, right? You look at the present moment and you make that difference and slowly you're going to chip away and you're going to get to the summit. But if you look at trying to get to the summit, you just, you freeze. So it is a progressive thing. Um, it is something that we have to work on, and it is not something where there is an end. Um, it's a constant evolution. A constant evolution. Nothing could be more true. And it's very much what we explore on Add Passion and Stir, at the heart of everything we do at Share Our Strength. Every day, we address systems and challenges in our world and work to be part of the constant evolution towards a world that is more open, more welcoming, more just. I hope you enjoyed this look back at our conversations with two incredible chefs, women, Korean Americans, sharing their strength. If you want to hear the full conversations, just visit adpassionandstir.com. 
There you can find links to Ann Kim's restaurants and the Korean Vegan, along with more than 200 other conversations with inspiring changemakers. And please, if you like the show, share it with a friend or rate the show so that others can find it. Add Passion and Stir is produced by Paul Woodall and the team at District Productive and Johanna Weber of Papanaw with support from our team at Shar Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. My sister Debbie Shore, Megan Cantrell, and Kelly Griffin. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore. 